Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome back to Candidate Confessional. I'm Sam Stein. And I'm Jason Cherkis. And a couple of weeks ago, you, the listener, heard from Congressman Barney Frank about the efforts to integrate gays into the military. Now, At the end of that interview, the former congressman made the point that for a while, people were warning that if gays were allowed to openly serve in the military, or even if they were just allowed to marry each other, it would be deeply destabilizing to both those institutions. At this point, he says, most people have forgotten that they ever had those fears. The same is true about gay political candidates who run for office. Today, no one bets an eye when that happens. No one cares about their sexuality. But that wasn't always the case. No, as recently as 1996, there were only three openly gay people in all of Congress. In that year, two of them decided to retire. Good old Barney Frank, our podcast guest, was the last one standing. That year, however, there were two openly gay candidates running for office. One of them was Dale McCormick of Maine. The other was Rick Zuber in Long Beach, California. Now, this was historic. Frank and others had only come out after being elected. This was the first time a gay politician was running for Congress with their sexuality not being a secret. It was a big deal. The Advocate ran a story headline, quote, The Challenger. This year could be the first in which an openly gay candidate for Congress ousts an incumbent. The picture in that piece was Rick. They covered that story and they covered his candidacy Every month. It was big news and it was incredibly important. And on today's episode, we have none other than Rick Zuber. Zuber. Rick Zuber. You'll figure it out. Yes, we sat down with the former California congressional candidate to talk about his campaign from 21 years ago. How he ended up being a test case for dealing with running for office while you're out. And what it was like to be in a country where homophobia was still rampant. Welcome to Candidate Confessional. In the early 90s, Rick Zaber was working at a law firm called Latham & Watkins. He wasn't exactly in the closet, but he wasn't quite out either. His co-workers generally didn't know he was gay. When I started there, there were no openly gay lawyers in the entire firm. It uh, wasn't a bad place. In fact, I ended up becoming the first person to make partner at the firm, coming out uh, in my fifth or sixth year. And it was um, in part because I decided to do, a, uh, a back then, a gay and lesbian fundraiser uh, for Barbara Boxer when she was running for the United States Senate in the primary. And um, it started out as this little this little house party, and I started getting, you know, and, but it was one of the first times that even in California, any uh, candidate for office was willing to sort of accept help from the LGBT community in a public way. And so uh, when that happened, my friends and I just decided we were going to do this little thing at my house. And 
it ended up like mushrooming into this huge fundraiser with like 600 people. I told the boxer campaign, it's not going to fit at my house. They thought I was like some, you know, some naive kid that was making up that all these people were going to show up. And I finally forced them to move it to the Roosevelt hotel. And we ended up having like 700 people show up and it made the, uh, made the LA times. And of course, uh, as I, and I was listed as one of the organizers. And of course that, uh, was read by everyone at my law firm. And, uh, of course the, (laughs) I, I, I then came out. Became a player. Yeah. 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 Um, Well, what was it like the the day you came into the law firm after the fundraiser? Made headlines. Was that nerve wracking for you in some way? No, way? not really. I mean, I think it, people generally do. It's an odd way do. to come out. I have to say, yeah, like, I'm going to do a big fundraiser and they'll figure it out through the press. A bold I'm, name yeah, yeah. in the LA Times was it. You know? <laughs> you know, the firm was incredibly, incredibly supportive. I mean, one of the nice things about Latham and Watkins is it's truly a meritocracy. I was doing really well there. Sure. And uh, I remember my department chair uh, asked me to lunch a couple days later, and I thought it was about something we were working on for work, and she basically. Um, uh, asked me to sort of come into her office and she had a big conference table and we were having, she had lunch served and she basically said, so we read the paper. <laughs> no, she said, I, I heard you came out last night. And I said, well, I didn't really, I, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't anything I was ever really hiding, but, um, but she said, I just want you to know it's okay with me and it's okay with everyone. And we're really proud of you. The reason we're talking to you is because back in 1996, you ran for Congress. For Congress in the 38th congressional district. Which is what? At that time, it's a little bit different now yeah. since redistricting, but at that time it included most of the city of Long Beach and then some of the communities just to the north, sort of south of Los Angeles, uh, and and Long Beach was the biggest city. What was the community like? Well, I mean, it's changed a little bit sure. since I Back ran. Then. Back then, it was the most Democratic seat held by Republican in California and one of the most Democratic seats. It was being represented by a so-called moderate Republican, uh, but named it, Stephen Horn, named Stephen Horn, uh, who got elected a bit because he was sort of a local folk hero. Uh, it really was a Democratic district. It had been represented by a Democrat before that. Why was Horn a local folk hero? Well, he had been uh, president of Cal State Long Beach, so um, he was able to sort of, in that role, sort of portray himself as being, uh, you know, sort of nonpartisan, and you know, back in. Those days, this was, you know, right after the Republicans took control of the Congress this with the 94, contract. 94, yeah. 94 with the contract on America. And he actually was, had represented that he was going to be a moderate and, you know, of course, started voting with all the Republicans to cut Medicare and Social Security and As all of they those. Do. How, they how do. did he, how did he win? I mean, uh, you talk about being, being a folk hero, but it does seem miraculous that he won this. The, well, there was a, um, it was 94, man. Yeah. It was a brutal year for Democrats. Well, so there were, there were a, um, I'm uh, 22. Sam, I don't know anything <laughs> about this. That is a lie, but go on. So there was a lot of Republicans the year that, and this was before I ran. Yeah. So this was two cycles before there were a lot of Republicans who ran in the race. And the Republicans in California are really super conservative. So um, there were probably, I, I can't remember, six or seven Republicans that were all super conservative. One uh, had run right after uh, Clinton Anderson resigned. There was a little bit of a scandal with his campaign and the combination of that, plus his, his being able to pre- present himself as sort of a moderate. He won a narrow victory. Well, why did you want to run? Um, I, you know, I ran. This was, um, you know, I was had just made partner at my law firm. Um, I had become much more politically active in part because of the AIDS crisis and really the Republicans not doing anything about it. I had really close friends who had um, died and were sick. My uh, then partner was HIV positive. Um, and, um, 
and you know, frankly, I'm a progressive Democrat and saw what the Republicans were trying to do, um, and you know, thought that I could make a difference. So I guess we should explain. I mean, the reason we're having you on this podcast is, and I, I want to make sure I get this right. Were you the first openly gay, non-elected official to run for non-incumbent. Congress, non-incumbent? To run for Congress. Is I wasn't correct? the first to run. So in that, in 1996, there were, I think, four, I think it was the first time that we had four out candidates that were running for Congress in different districts across okay. the country. And two of them, um, were not really all that viable. They were running in very conservative districts. And then Dale McCormick was running up in Maine. And then my district, because of the, um, you know, the, uh, the fact that it was a Democratic district held by Republican was also, uh, view, it was viewed as a, uh, a target by the Democrats. Sure. So, um, so ours were the sort of the two most viable districts. And, um, there had been, there were, at that point in time, there were openly gay members of Congress, Barney right. Frank, Barney Frank Gary and Jerry, Gary Studs had all been, but they had not run initially as openly gay candidates. So they'd come out while they were in office. So, so when I ran the primary, I was the first openly gay person to win a contested primary for United States. Congress. Uh, Were you recruited? I mean, how did the, how did it get yeah. to get to you? Um, yes and no. Um, I, I wouldn't sort of say the. Par- I think the party at the time had mixed views about. Uh, there were some folks in the party that I think really uh, thought it was time for uh, uh, an LGBT candidate to uh, step forward, and so I think there was a lot of enthusiasm, but there was in some parts of the party leadership a lot of nervousness, and they said, you know, do we really want some gay guy to be carrying the torch in one of our lead um, and targeted seats? So, yeah, what kind of negative feedback did you get? I mean, because for some people, some of our listeners, they may not know that there was a time when maybe when there wasn't gay marriage, when there wasn't LGBTQ rights, when it wasn't sort of mainstream the way it is now, and I'm wondering what it was. Yeah, what was the climate debates? like, right? I mean, it, well, it no seems one, so I mean, there were no, no Democrats supported uh, gay marriage other than gay people, right? And there were only in California, there were only That's including a the couple, right? Yeah, oh, oh, there were only a couple openly gay uh, people that had been elected to office. Uh, you had Sheila Kuehl, who was already in the assembly, and Carol Migdon. And those were sort of the first two. I think they, I think Carol had already been elected. So I think those, that was sort of it. And then we had a number, obviously we had uh, openly gay people in uh, San Francisco and um, Jackie Goldberg had, had recently been elected to the city council, first uh, LGBT person in Los Angeles. Um, so it was really a, uh, it, w- it was really still pretty uncommon to have gay candidates. Okay, before we get into Rick's campaign for Congress, I think it's worth pausing for a moment to remember just what the big cultural attitudes towards gays and lesbians were in the mid-1990s. We're accustomed at this point to a world in which gay marriage is legal and gays can serve openly in the military, but things were very different back then. Just hearing the way gay issues were discussed on the news, it could be a little jarring. Halloween is traditionally the night when San Francisco gays get together to celebrate their lifestyle. A Washington state newspaper infuriated some of its readers when it printed this marriage announcement from a lesbian couple. In custody battles, four states deem gay parents unfit. Psychologist Charlotte Patterson, a lesbian. And in Congress, the rhetoric about gay rights or gay marriage was a lot more intense. To insist that male-male or female-female relationships must have the same status 
as the marriage relationship is more than unwise, it is patently absurd. The very foundations of our society are in danger of being burned. The flames of hedonism, the flames of narcissism, the flames of self-centered morality are licking at the very foundations of our society. With the exception of Barney Frank, who sounded pretty much like he does today. <laughs> I find it implausible that two men deciding to commit themselves to each other threaten the marriage of people a couple of blocks away. Well, talk, just talk a little bit more about the culture in that moment, mid-90s. Um, we're coming off of uh, Don't Ask, Don't Tell, which was a defeat in some respects, uh, even though progress was made. The Ellen Show is still on the yeah, air. The Ellen Show is on sure the air. I'm not sure if she came out. Uh, Bill Clinton is you know, sort of famously playing these cultural wars a little bit against his own party. It's not It's not the modern age. It's, it's, a, it's a difficult time, I would say, to be openly gay still. It, wa- it was a difficult time. There was a lot of question about whether a gay candidate could win in a major race. No one had ever won for Congress ever before running as an openly gay candidate. I remember we gave lots and lots of thought to how we would inoculate uh, me for what would ultimately be attacks based upon my sexual orientation. Um, I chose my pollster based upon the fact that he had actually done a lot of polling for um, lower-level candidates in uh, gay candidates and other races. Um, you know, the entire campaign strategy was uh, was um, uh, was guided in part by the fact that we knew that I had to – that that was going to be an issue. Well, I just want to interject one second because I think you touched on something that I'm curious about, which is the LGBT community – let's say the gay rights community at that point in time um, – had spent the 80s, early 90s – sort of outside the political process, banging the doors, calling for action, but never actually becoming a firm part of the political process? Was there a conscientious decision within the community and maybe within yourself to say, you know what, we can't just be outsiders. We need to be within the system trying to affect that change. I wouldn't say that it was a – that there was some kind of, you know, uh, LGBT – Come board, to Jesus board, moment. <laughs> board or yeah, some yeah, kind of sure, strategy sure. group enough, that enough. was plotting things out. You know, it was <laughs> everything was really like five people in a room. Yeah. So yeah, no, it, was, it was very decentralized. I think all of us were doing things in our own communities. And uh, when I decided to run for Congress, I mean, I think there were actually people in the in the LGBT community who said, you know, this is a big step up. You've never run for office before. You know, do are you really viable? And what was their nervousness that if you got defeated badly, it would be a sign of, you know, a setback in some respect. Yeah. Well, I, well, the other thing is that, you know, we had in Steve Horn, uh, someone who was, wasn't all that great on LGBT rights, but then actually when I ended up coming into the race and, uh, and, uh, and raising lots of money, uh, frankly, I mean, I think at one point, I think I was probably the fourth or fifth highest raising non-incumbent on the Democratic party that cycle. And so he could sort of see a well-funded candidate coming in on the other side. And then all of a sudden, he basically decides that he's going to support Enda because, <laughs> you know, there was there's a gay community. And I mean, there was the other thing is there was a gay there is a gay community in Long Beach. Yeah. And so what we had been looking at a lot of the polling data and we said, OK, how much is how much am I going to be hurt by being a gay candidate? And do is it offset by the fact that we actually have a pretty big gay voting block in Long Beach that can offset that. And I think our, our conclusion was, yes, that that was likely to be the case. What did the polling tell you about how people would receive a gay candidate? Um, basically, uh, and I don't think this changes very much on any issue, but I think what 
you know, we knew that there was going to be a base in that district of about, I can't remember the exact number, but 33, 34% that would never vote for me. Um, but they also wouldn't vote for me because I was pro-choice and because I was in favor of gun safety regulations and uh, was a Democrat and a progressive. And so we uh, we thought the biggest question that we had was, was there going to be some kind of Tom Bradley effect, you know, of people Explain that, that for the listeners. Well, Tom Bradley, remember, ran for, um, for governor in California. He was the first uh, black African-American, maybe not the first, but he was a, obviously had been the mayor of Los Angeles um, and was uh, – running for governor and the polls showed that he should have won. And then in the end, uh, he lost. And I think a lot of uh, people wondered whether or not the polling was accurate and whether there was bias that was not the being idea being in the that poll. you wouldn't want to tell a pollster that you weren't going to vote against a guy because you thought you might be portrayed as racist. So you right. lied to the pollster. So you lied to the pollster. So we, we always wondered how much of that might happen. I'm wondering if, if, if so how did you had to handle or sort of modulate your message? What, were you going to be the gay candidate? Were you going to be the Democrat progressive candidate? We've had people on here. Um, we had a candidate last last in the last season who had really difficulty running as a gay candidate in the South and sort of had to sort of figure out – never really could figure out how to talk about gay marriage in a way that felt honest to him. And he ended up saying things that he regretted. And I'm wondering if you – had to figure out how am I going to modulate my message to appeal to the most people or am I going to be who I am and forget the rest? Um, I didn't lead with the fact that I was a gay candidate. If people ever asked me and it was always, you know, every, every newspaper article in Long Beach was uh, Rick Zuber, you know, an openly gay candidate. Yes. They couldn't not ever say, you don't see that very much anymore, no, you don't. right? Hardly ever. But back then, Every newspaper article said it. So it was like it, your title, basically. Pretty much. I mean, I, I, had, I, had a, I had a second candidate, Democrat and gay. So. <laughs> but in the framing of, say, the Medicare cuts, or Medicaid cuts, you had said you had talked to the advocate, I think, or they quoted you saying this that those cuts would uh, hurt, were especially hurt the HIV people living with HIV. So you were framing it in some ways. On, on, I think maybe the maybe communities that weren't heard from in those ways. Yeah, I mean, you know, I would always uh, talk about the issues that, but but you know, there was actually there's a, a funny story at one point. Go on. One one of the things that we did is that we knew that one of the ways that opponents of gay candidates they really try to attack the integrity of the candidate. Um, they try to make them seem other, uh, like they're different. Um, and one of our strategies in some of our early mail pieces, which were just positive pieces about me, were really about me showing me with my with my family and showing me with my brothers and sisters and showing me with my parents. I think the first piece was called respect and talked about sort of my respect for, for values, uh, for values of respect and values. And there was a picture of me at the end. And I remember we got a call into the campaign office and, um, someone says, you know, there's a, someone who's got your piece of mail and he wants to talk to you. Will you take the call? And I said, Oh yeah. I said, cause I'd take calls if people called in and want to talk to me. And I said, yeah, sure. And he goes, and then they said, they said, well, I just want you to know before you take the call that this person uh, said that the reason why they're calling is because you and Pat Buchanan are their favorite candidates. <laughs> so I sat back and I thought, are we are we laying on this family stuff a little bit too heavy? Was there ever a, a, a thing where you where they wanted you to do something to make you look even or like packing, you know, like put no, you no, 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 no. I mean, everything. I, I was really comfortable with it. I mean, like a obviously, pitchfork and a hayfield. <laughs> no, no, it was it was really just, but but you know, back in those days, Shotgun, it was the game. Sort of like, <laughs> you shoot the bill. Um, so you, you had to go through a primary first. It wasn't, I did. It wasn't like you were going to necessarily walk and be the Democrat. No, and I was running against the Democratic nominee from the cycle before. So okay. uh, he had lost badly in the 
general um, and was viewed as uh, uh, he was viewed in part as the more progressive candidate. Uh, in reality, he wasn't more progressive. I mean, I think his cosmetic was a little bit different. And, but if you looked at sort of our positions on the issues, they were almost identical. What did you learn from the primary? I mean, it's your first time running. A, a, a was race it your first time running any? For it was office? first time okay. running. I'd ever run for office. Okay. Um, one, it's a lot harder than you think. So one of the things is about three weeks before the election, almost everyone thought I was going to lose. There were some polls that had been taken by the party. It was uh, – we didn't know this, but it was showing that I was way down. Um, this is in the primary? In the primary. I was sitting on $300,000 that I wasn't planning on spending in the primary because – uh, I figured I'd sort of save it for the general because I knew that the general was going to be really tough. And so basically my camp, the, my main campaign consultant just sort of cut and run. He just wasn't around. He didn't think that anything could happen. We ended up um, – I ended up just saying, OK, let's just spend the rest of the money. And so – Yeah, no need to hang on to that. If you're yeah. Lose. So we just – we basically did what – you know, we were – We've had paid phone banks. We put in, I think, nine additional pieces of mail went out in different targeted ways, not with my consultant, but with the pollster and my field consultant doing the mail because we had to do this in like five days. Remember, the, you know, you have to print it. It's got to get to the post office. It's got to be delivered while people are printing. So it was like – It was old school. It was like – it was just like a cram session for five days, like just ch chucking out pieces of mail. Uh, in the end, um, we – Came, I won the live vote by about 8%. Uh, so I had come up on people that would, had voted that day like 20 points in three weeks. Um, and the reason why I was so close was that all the people that had voted early who, you know, it reflected sort of the fact that I was behind. So I lost the absentee and won the live vote and it was enough to sort of get me over. Why do you think you were be so behind three weeks out? Was it just name recognition or what was it? What no was one it knew the doing? guy. I didn't know no one knew me. <laughs> Seriously, I don't think, <laughs> I, don't think, think that was it? I think it, it was, I think that's it. I think my, I think my mail Obscure lawyer doing yeah. environmental law. Who knows this guy? No, we'd only done like four <laughs> or five pieces of mail and I, you know, and I wasn't smart enough to know that that wasn't going to be enough. But you were sitting on 300000 And I was sitting on Three hundred thousand dollars. Spend the money. Right? He thought people individually read each piece of mail and didn't just chuck <laughs> it. <laughs> After the break, with the primary behind him, Rigsberg gets ready to take on his Republican foe in the general election, and he gets a little friendly advice from good old Barney Frank. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
So you win the you win the uh, you're now the candidate. You're running. Did you ever like reach out to Barney or? or oh, Barney was great. Uh, did you so ask him? Like, listen, I'm in uncharted, kind of uncharted. Barney game. would call me every week or two. What would he say? Yeah. Uh, he would give me advice. Um, and only a Barney Frank fashion. Yeah, no, it, it was all, all, all very well-meaning. Some but. of it you can understand. Some of it was unintelligible. <laughs> no, he was he was amazing. He really was. He came out to the district several times, did fundraisers. I mean, he'd call up. But if he didn't like how, something I was doing, he would. He, I'd get a call. It's like, it's it's Congressman Frank. And I'm like, okay, I'll take the call. I praise <laughs> myself a little bit. He was very very frank on sort of what he thought, yeah. um, but good advice. Um, well, what was some of the advice you were getting? I mean, the other people was like, you know, Henry Waxman was amazing. Um, Congresswoman Pelosi, who was not in the leadership at the time, sort of adopted me. It was really a very. Um, were you getting the? My, my, what I want to get is, were you getting actual tangible pieces of advice about what to do about your sexuality, or whether, or what, how to emphasize certain elements or policy positions? I mean, what were were people trying to sort of walk you through what to expect? No, I think people were. Um, people knew that I had good campaign consultants on the messaging related sure. to the sexual orientation. And I think that they had seen what we were doing. They agreed with the strategy that yeah. I had come up with. It was really more on, um, you know, uh, you know, when you're a candidate, obviously, uh, especially in California, there were a bunch of seats that the Democrats were trying to take back in order to take back the House. And there's a certain amount of competition that's occurring among the congressional candidates about who's getting the profile from the party, who's yeah. getting the money from the party, who's um, getting visits from the officials. yeah, who gets the speaking role at the yeah. national convention, um, all of those kinds of things. Um, I think the thing that was really interesting to me at the time is that you know the LGBT mafia that was embedded in Washington and in all the unions and in uh, the party; those people were with me, and I had help that I never would have imagined would have been the case yeah. beforehand. Um, you know, the, there were gay staffers all over the place that were, um, you know, that knew that this was a significant race for our community and were doing everything they could to try did to help you, me. Did you ever think about, I mean, because, and I want to make sure I'm, I'm getting your actual communication strategy correct. You weren't hiding the fact that you were gay. You were answering questions, but it wasn't the central focus. It was you, not the central focus. Did you ever race. think that, um, Maybe making it the central focus that you you were a historic candidate. Um, you're trying to do what no one else had done before. Um, that maybe you could have become a cause, or was it just not the right time for that? You know, I think um, so. One, I never, I, I never hit it. I mean, you have different aspects of a campaign. You have aspects to of messaging to your donors. You have aspects of messaging to the broader press, yeah. the local press and the national press. We were getting lots and lots of national press coverage. I mean, it was not like making it sort of more of a cause, I think, would have sort of helped me electorally. And in the district, everyone knew that I was gay. Um, they used it against me. I mean, there was stuff that, you know, in the end, you know, Steve Horn, even though he was claimed that he was um, not a uh, – you know, not against the LGBT community ended up when I came close in the general election. We did a poll that showed I was within, I think, four or five points um, against, you know, the sitting incumbent. And he got worried and he started doing mail pieces in the conservative parts of the district that basically the cover said, is Steve Horn anti-gay? And then you'd open it up and say, no, he'd never use the fact that Rick Zabur is a homosexual against him in this race. Which was, of course, using it well, against your race. Right, right. There was also a um, – there were some phone calls, a pollster I, I read made uh, – what is essentially a push pull, um, asking about whether people were, you know, how they felt about your sexuality. Was that from the Horn campaign? 
I don't know. We never figured out where that came from. Uh, but we knew that people were doing leafleting. They were doing leafleting in the conservative churches. There was a, uh, a piece with uh, President Clinton had come out to campaign for me at one point, And there was what? a picture of me shaking hands with him. And it had uh, Clinton and a, a picture of President Clinton and me. And then it basically had a caption below do you want a homosexual representing you in our congressional district? And, you know, they, we would see these things coming up all the time. We had, you know, lots of crazy hate calls coming in the district all the time. And we'd come in every morning. And that was back at the days when you had, like, recorded answering machines. Yeah. What kind of messages? Were, so you were getting hate messages every morning? Like Pretty personal? much every day. Yeah, every day. If I on point, the, the Long Beach police had to put a police detail on my house because they found someone – in my backyard, um, and when they traced the police plates, then they, you know, we had police officers they, they, towards the end of the general election. Um, you know, it was a it was a really different time. I mean, it was really unusual to have a, an open the gate candidate. What did that do for the campaign or for you? Like when you're running and getting these hate, waking up and the first thing you're listening to are these hate messages, and then the security at your house. I mean, at some point, did that freak you out, or I mean, how does that play on you mentally? Um, you think about it. Um, I think I had was sort of prepared for it. Um, you know, my, I think my staff, I think it really steeled them. You know, they just sort of realized that it was, that the race was significant, um, you know, but I'd, I'd see these things. I mean, they'd bring them into me. I mean, sometimes we'd get these things in the mail, which were like crazy people, you know, just like scripture, like a full piece of butcher paper with scribbled stuff all over about, you know, where I was going to go in the afterlife and, you know, all kinds of scripture stuff with, obscenities uh, interlaced into it. And, you know, we would get that kind of stuff all the time. The obscenities were in the Bible. Yeah. Well, a quote from the Bible and then an obscenity and then then where I was going to go. But did you worry about going to campaign events for your safety at any point? Not really. Maybe I should have, (laughs) but... I'm wondering if you had any sort of moments. I mean, in every campaign, you go to these events and you're meeting strangers. I'm wondering if you're, hey, take my picture. And I'm wondering if you were ever worried about anybody coming up to you and wanting to take your picture or wanting to sort of interact with you. And you're like, I don't know where this guy's coming from. I'm a little bit, he might be somebody that's not in my best interest. Or Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think, you know, I was always more worried in things like gay pride parades because there were so many people in the crowds and those kinds of things. But, um, you know, we just didn't, it was just sort of a fact of life at the time. There was not much you could do about it. I wasn't going to not run a campaign because of some potential fear that's out there. Um, How do you put all that sort of stuff aside and not like lash out or punch a wall or, you know, yell at somebody? Uh, Maybe that's not what you do. (laughs) (laughs) Infamous puncher. Um, I I guess I'm curious. This might be an incredibly naive question, but, you know, the most infamous or famous, I should say, um, case of a a gay man running California's Harvey Milk, obviously, Mm -hmm, in the assassination. And I mean, that that was well before your congressional run. But to Jason's point, uh, was it ever in the back of your mind, that story? Oh, of course it was. I mean, I remember when we um, when we found the person and the you know, we were we were telling the police periodically about the about the you know, the death threats and we were getting death threats. I mean, that was part of what was coming, some of what was coming in on the thing. And so the police were sort of monitoring it and we were not paying too much attention until they actually did put the detail on my house towards the end of the campaign. And then I was a little bit nervous about it. Um, But, you know, again, uh, you can't, you know, you can't let fear um, of, you know, prevent you from making progress and, and then, I, have, I want to just read you uh, – with respect to the attacks that your opponent was making and I guess some of these attacks coming in, I want to read a quote that I found of yours. 
um, about how you approached uh, these attacks. You said, the last thing you want uh, as an openly gay candidate is to have the dialogue in the campaign be whether or not homophobic activities are occurring. Uh, that was your rationalization for not responding right. to the um, vitriol that was sending right to the push polls to the stuff from your opponent. Um, explain explain that thinking. Well, we knew that for me to get elected in that district that we needed to talk about the issues that voters cared about. Mm-hmm. And so, um, uh, you know, that uh, – if we had been responding to those kinds of things, which were basically happening pretty frequently, and I think are probably the case were you know were pretty common for most gay candidates that were running for office, we would have been uh, talking about issues that they wanted to talk about, not issues. Is there that we terrain? Want. Right. I mean, did, did uh, in your conversations with Barney Frank or Nancy Pelosi, do they give you advice on just how to deal with this, how to navigate this? I mean, I'm sure Frank has probably gotten hate mail, yeah. that kind of thing. Obviously, he went through through it. Um, I don't. I don't remember that we ever sort of spoke about the those issues all that much. Um, I think you know really what uh, most of the um, most of the advice that Frank was sort of giving me were things about you know what the mail should look like and how I should be spending my, whether I was doing enough field and whether we were doing enough walking and you know how we were using the budget and you know where whether we were raising So he did ask you like hey how many doors doors did you knock on <laughs> Pretty much actually really, he's you like, call you he's like door knocking count. you know I remember getting a call from him and was like why the heck are you going to Pennsylvania to raise money you need to be back in the district knocking on doors I remember I could specifically totally see yeah, that. Yeah. I could tell you. And the did he critique your mail uh, no, 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 no. He he didn't do that. But he but he he was very focused, and he was right. He was very focused on making sure that we were spending enough time actually talking to the voters and making you know doing enough field, spending enough of our you know. We actually ran a campaign where uh, we didn't have a lot of fluffy expenses. I mean, you want as much as you raise to go into communicating with voters in your district, and so if you get too distracted from that, then it's just you know. It's so one, one thing that happened that I, I was surprised is that the human rights campaign um, did a double endorsement. They endorsed you and Horn. Um, that seemed that totally is bull- shocking. That is bullshit. That seems like, <laughs> <that does seem laughs> like bullshit. I have to, thank you. You call, he's calling <laughs> what it is. That's kind of crazy though. Yeah. You well, you know, in all, in all defense of my friends at a human rights campaign okay. and we work really well with them as a quality I don't, I don't want to get them in now. trouble now, yeah, but back on. in 96, you must have been furious. Just well, let, let me tell, tell you. how you really feel. <laughs> yeah. So no, well, you know, in there, uh, at the time I felt a lot of the same emotions that you just espoused. <laughs> um, although we, um, uh, you know, if you sort of look at it from their perspective, uh, they were really trying to advance ENDA and basically were trying to get Republicans on board. And, you know, Horn was someone who would talk to them. And frankly, when I came into the race, they were talking about how they were going to endorse Republicans who jumped onto ENDA. And, you know, the fact that he jumped onto ENDA after I came into the race, they were in a really difficult position because they had he was one of a handful of Republicans that was actually going to do that. So, um, you know, I remember talking to um, their political director at the time and I just said, look, you know, um, just just do the dual endorsement. It's just uh, it's it's um, because they were going to stay out. Uh, They were going to stay out of the race. And 
to me, staying out was worse than them doing a dual endorsement because uh, I had people in other parts of the country that were donors that were basically saying, okay, is the staying out mean that he doesn't have a chance to win or he's some kind of crazy person? Um, and uh, and so I, the dual endorsement at least gave uh, sort of the seal of approval on the race. And frankly, I knew that he wasn't going to be raising money from people who cared about gay rights at the time uh, and that that would help me. Uh, still crazy, man. I can't. That's just shocking to me. So when did you know that you weren't going to win? Uh, did you ever think you were going to win? Um, I did think I was going to win. Okay. Otherwise, I wouldn't have um, uh, done it. Um, I I think I realized I wasn't going to win probably about four or five days before the election. Um, and I actually remember having a conversation with my uh, campaign consultant. Um, her name was Mary Hughes, who basically was the same consultant who um, actually won with Ellen Tauscher that same cycle. And she's actually uh, been the consultant for a lot of the women congressional candidates in California. Um, and I remember talking to her and I said, you know, it's, Mary, do you really think I can win this? Because I had about probably about Two or three hundred thousand dollars that I hadn't uh, that I had to make a decision on whether I was you and saving hundreds of thousands. No, no, of we dollars. were going to spend it. Okay, okay, I just wanted... we were going to spend it, but um, but uh, we had all the last the the it was probably maybe a week in advance. We had all the mail printed, and we had all this mail printed that was going out in the last week, and I had to pay for the postage, which is about half the cost of the yeah. mail pieces. So I went back and I said, you know, I've got this couple hundred thousand dollars. Should I just basically use it for someone else? Um, uh, there were other candidates that I cared about and I could have uh, – it was legal at that time I think to sort of transfer to do – use it in some other way. And I said, you know, do you really think I have a shot? Should I – am I wasting this money? Is this all cosmetic and for vanity if I go forward with that? And she actually convinced me. She said, no, you've got a shot. You can't give up now get your mail out. So we made the decision then. But I think I basically uh, had an inkling that I probably wasn't going to win. It was probably about a week out. Uh, after the fact, though, it was actually interesting. She called me about two weeks after the election. And, you know, it wasn't that it, it turned out not being all that close. Um, but she basically said that she had looked at all the numbers and she said, you know, I just want to give you some good news and some bad news. <laughs> and I said, OK, uh, shoot. She goes, if you had had about seven or eight hundred thousand dollars more, you could have won that race because I'm looking at the numbers and it was sort of. Um, I said, "Well, there was no way I could raise another." Yeah, that's a lot of 000. money. Yeah. Um, so, um, but anyway, it was it was a, it was an interesting time. What was the thing? You know, the five or six days out that led you know that you were going to lose. What was it? Was there a moment or a poll of data? Somebody from um, Barney Frank calling you up? I don't remember. <laughs> I just sort of I just sort of think that. Uh, we we were get well. Some of it was we were getting uh, a lot of the um, um, uh, the negative mail from the Horn campaign. So you know the anti LGBT hits, um, the papers. The paper was against me in the general. It was actually pretty funny. Papers take sides in races. They liked me in the primary. So it's like nothing I could do. Everything was positive about the campaign. I could do no wrong. Literally a week after I win the primary. All this negative things that keeps coming out in the papers. He's running glossy mail. You know, it's like no different than anyone else's mail in the rest <laughs> of the country. But in Long Beach, for some reason, sending out glossy flyers, was a no -no? glossy, expensive flyers. I was like, you know, became like a big campaign issue. And so everything I did was sort of a negatively covered. And it was sort of, you know, it was just, uh, just, you know, article after article after article about little tiny things. 
So um, when you lost, uh, I mean, obviously the um, it's a personal defeat. Um, were you hopeful though that you had maybe sort of opened people's minds to the possibility of? electing someone who is openly gay to Congress. Yeah. In fact, I talked to Tammy Baldwin. She remember ran the next cycle. And so I remember when she was making the decision to... Now, let's explain. Tammy is from uh, Wisconsin, Wisconsin, who was then... Uh, in 1998, uh, this was really two years. You know, she. I think I talked to her probably four or five months after I lost. And she was already thinking about running for Congress in that congressional district in Wisconsin. Um, and so, you know, spent a bunch of time with her on the phone, sort of uh, giving her sort of my sense of sort of what the challenges were and what she was going to face and giving her some recommendations on uh, different consultants that I had talked to and ones that I thought were um, sort of understood how to help a, a you know, a, a gay candidate, a gay or lesbian candidate. And obviously, you know, T Tammy went on to win and she actually did, um, you know, sort of break that glass ceiling by ha being the first openly LGBT person to to get elected to Congress running. And now in the out. U.S. Senate. What kind of feedback did you get from the gay community after the election? Did people feel like, oh, that you let them down in some way? Or did people have positive, positive feedback for you? I mean, I'm wondering, um, I don't know how. You know, no one tells you, gives you directly the negative feedback. Uh, or it's That's very seldom. I remember like two days after the election and I was actually sleeping in late and um, the phone rang. It was, I think, something like probably 9.30 or 10 in the morning. And then I, I'm like in bed. I, I'd gone through like a year a race at that point. I decided to sleep in and all of a sudden it's basically said, I've got a call from the White House. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, I better like sort of wake up really fast. And of course it was Vice President Gore um, <laughs> calling to congratulate me for the run. Um, I felt like I'd let people down. Um, it was probably the reason why I didn't run the next cycle. Because uh, I did get a lot of people that wanted me to run again. Um, and frankly, I probably would have won in the next cycle, but not knowing that at the time, just because um, there weren't really Clinton coattails in 1996. In 1998, the Democrats, there was, a you know, frankly, the person who ran in that seat actually was a lesbian um, who ended up getting the party nomination because um, most of the candidates that were more credible um, – both LGBT and non-LGBT, you know, the sitting elected officials, the state assembly members, the state senators, they looked at my race and they said, you know, the, that guy spent like $1.5 million, which at that time was a huge amount of money. Amount, yeah. He couldn't unseat Horn, so none of us are going to try for that. So there were really no um, strong candidates running. And uh, the, um, this, um, this woman who was a lesbian ends up getting – uh, getting the party nomination. I think, I don't remember how much she spent $87,000 in the race and came closer to winning than I did with no communication. And it was just the cycle. Were you so, like, but, shit, I did. I did. did, I did look at that. Yeah. I'm like, you it know, was I like could have raised the mailers. That yeah, did. yeah I could have had my glossy mailers <laughs> out there and <laughs> we could have been communicating with folks. Um, but I didn't, the reason why I didn't was because I looked at it and I said, you know, I gave it my best shot. Um, and, you know, I, I did, I ran a strong campaign. I spent, I raised the money I needed to do to communicate with the voters. I walked to all these precincts, had good help. I didn't think that, and at that point now he had been in three cycle, three terms, the sitting incumbent. And, yeah. you know, at some point the incumbent gets embedded and it's really hard to unseat them. Yeah. So that's why I didn't run the sex time. But. Um, so I don't know if um, your perceptions for how uh, politics would change after race were, but, you know, it it would be many, many years until we got to a place where, 
it was not, and maybe we're not quite there yet, but where it's really not an issue if you're openly gay and running for office anymore. I mean, the end of the Clinton years, we had the Defense Marriage Act, of course, infamously the 2004 elections with George Bush uh, making it a wedge issue. Um, were you surprised that progress wasn't quicker? That it wasn't quicker? Yeah. That it took until very recently for it to stop being such a lightning rod issue. Or maybe I have my history wrong. Maybe you think it did go quickly. Um, I think it was, I think we've made gradual progress since, you know, what's it been now? Tw uh, 20 years? 21 years. Yeah. Um, I think we've made gradual progress. Um, I think that at least in California, um, having LGBT candidates isn't all that uncommon. Sure. Um, I think in some ways, uh, I actually think it really is still a really important issue that LGBT people are elected to office because of the role models that they serve for young people, um, uh, because of the importance of, um, when you're doing, you know, advocacy in the state legislature, having someone who is personally affected by issues, who can look other legislators in the eye on the tough issues and say, I am personally affected by this and it can explain from personal experience how a vote really matters. Um, and so I think, um, there is a, there is a bit of an element on the progressive side that, uh, that all that all Democrats and all progressives are for LGBT rights, and that um, uh, and that is more or less true, which wasn't the case uh, when I ran. Um, but there still is a really, uh, I think, a big importance to having LGBT people having seats at the table. We're still underrepresented um, in even in California in the legislature compared to our. Uh, the percentage that we are in the community and state boards and commissions. Uh, we worked with the Williams Institute two years ago. They did our survey of 230 something boards and commissions in California. So that's a couple thousand appointees. There were only 14 openly LGBT people out of 2000 something wow. appointments. So we've been working with governor Brown's office to try to, we have this leadership Academy to really trying to prepare people for public service through appointed positions and, really creating a, you know, a pipeline of applicants into the governor's office. So, I mean, all those things are still really important. Because if you ran today, I mean, no one would, no, one, you wouldn't have that addendum to your name in the newspaper. It's just different right. now. Yeah. Uh, I wouldn't have the addendum to my name. Uh, I also raised a lot of money, though, because I had the addendum to my name and everyone across the country knew that it was significant. So in some ways... Um, I had some advantages in 1996 that wouldn't necessarily be the case today. Um, I think sort of issues of raising money and fundraising and even with progressive groups, it's not necessarily – it's not so unique and uncommon that that um, – uh, you know, that, that, that people weigh in. I mean I think what's similar now uh, to what I was sort of facing in 1996 is what's happening in the transgender community. I and mean, we have very few transgender – people elected to office. Um, we've, you know, other than um, Judge Kalikowski in San Francisco, there's not a transgender person that's been elected in California. And we have an opportunity this year to elect Lisa Middleton to the Palm Springs City Council. And she actually, um, you know, has served as head of the planning commission, head of the, you know, the, um, um, uh, the, the group that um, uh, represents all of the um, community groups in town. And so, but she's, you know, she's facing the same uh, kinds of issues that I think, uh, you know, gay and lesbian candidates did before that, you know. And you see the similar sort of fear mongering around those issues, especially with the bathroom bill. Right, or, right. With the bathroom bill yeah. and very, very similar kinds of things. Just one last question because you've t touched on it, but we haven't really broached it is what are you doing now and how does it sort of relate to, to your race in some ways? 
Well, I never, you know, I never really thought that I'd be running an LGBT civil rights organization. I did it after I took an early retirement from Latham. And frankly, I was actually talking to some folks about a government appointment because I've always really wanted to have to do with, some public with service. With Trump? No, no, not with Trump. <laughs> no, with Trump. I, was, I was hoping that there might be a different outcome <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, in the election but, um, and, and, or, or in the state of California. And, um, uh, and basically, Equality California uh, was struggling a little bit because they hadn't redefined the mission uh, for the organization beyond marriage equality. And so um, basically about two and a half years ago, decided to uh, – uh, the board um, asked me to sort of step in as executive director and help um, refocus the mission, reband the organization. Um, and we're doing well. We're about three times the size of what we were when I started two and a half years ago and really have a very – ambitious um, program just opened on a, 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 an office here in Washington, D.C., um, and we're going to be, uh, you know, really focused on preserving the Affordable Care Act. Um, I, the one thing I'll tell you is the most calls we got after the election, after Trump's election, uh, into our office were all, uh, I shouldn't say all, but uh, predominantly uh, LGBT people, people who are HIV positive or transgender or others who got their health care for the first time under the Affordable Care Act and are petrified of losing it. Um, and so um, that for us is, you know, in addition to sort of at the federal level doing whatever we can to limit the rollback from on some of these executive orders um, and some of the other bad things that he wants to do. But preserving the Affordable Care Act is a really high priority for us. That was Rick Zuber, former congressional candidate and now the executive director of Equality California. Candidate Confessional is produced and edited by Zach Young, who, as you know now, also wrote the theme music for this show. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe on your podcast platform of choice and spread the word. Just tell any random family member, stranger, person on the street that they should subscribe to. Next week, we are joined by not one but two senators, one former, one current, to talk about their attempts that failed to stop the Iraq War authorization in 2002. All right. Thank you so much. That wasn't that bad, right? No, no. <laughs> Interesting questions. I haven't thought about this stuff for years. I appreciate pretty good memory for being 20, yeah, 20, 20 I mean, years. 21 years ago. And you're yeah. like, yeah, two days after the election, I was doing this. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.